Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Before FIFA was corrupt, it was merely racist. Built in the image of its colonial architects, FIFA's view of the world reflected the privileged white status of its founding members. And maybe because of this, the corruption was inevitable. Maybe it wasn't the result of a few bad apples in the barrel, but a bad barrel itself. It's a question that might be best answered by looking at FIFA's sixth president, Sir Stanley Rouse, a man with many laudable qualities except the one he and the lords of soccer needed most, the ability to see beyond the world as it was and see the world as it could be if international soccer was made a fair game for all. I'm Connor Powell. This is Episode 5, The Colonialist. Freedom! 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 
Bobby Moore's white shorts were caked with mud. His red, number six, long-sleeve English jersey dripped with sweat as he led his team up the steep staircase at London's Wembley Stadium to the Royal Box. Bobby Moore led England up to the Royal Box to receive the Jules Rimet Cup and the winner's medals. Standing there in a light mustard yellow coat and matching hat was the young British monarch, Queen Elizabeth II, as was FIFA's president, an Englishman named Stanley Rouse. After one of those dainty royal handshakes, Queen Elizabeth passed the World Cup trophy, named after FIFA's third president, Jules Rimet, to England's exhausted but ecstatic captain. Before kissing FIFA's golden trophy, as was the tradition, Moore raised it above his head in triumph. Winning the 1966 World Cup over West Germany on its home soil remains the proudest moment in English soccer history. For many soccer fans around the world, that 1966 tournament is the golden age of World Cup soccer, an era before commercialism took root, when the game itself, not politics or profit, was front and center. This golden era, like most of its kind, is a myth an incomplete and often inaccurate story old men tell themselves to avoid an honest historical accounting. Two years before Moore raised that precious trophy, FIFA's leadership made a series of decisions that caused the entire African continent and its 15 World Cup-eligible nations to boycott the 1966 tournament. Think about that. An entire continent skipped the World Cup. That's Quite a footnote for the history books. The seeds of this boycott were planted years before. And while FIFA was not then the criminal organization that we've come to know in our previous episodes, run by the likes of Seth Blatter, Chuck Blazer, and Jack Warner, it was very much a Eurocentric, colonialist, and straight-up racist institution. In this episode, and the next few, I want to tell you about FIFA's history, one that looks beyond the polished golden era packaging that you find on FIFA's website, and share a realer history that includes the bigotry and racism that robbed an entire continent of even a chance at World Cup glory, and the embrace of ruthless authoritarian regimes that put profits ahead of everything the game stands for. These are the golden years? The presidents Sir Stanley Rouse and officials of FIFA, the International Football Federation, met at a London hotel to make the draw for the World Cup competition. It was a very English affair. Shiny silver trophy cups with decorative winged handles lined the front of the podium in the smoke-filled ballroom of London's Royal Garden Hotel. There are four trophies, one for each of the four groups that will play in the first round of the upcoming World Cup. A sea of old men with mostly white faces stared intensely at the FIFA officials sitting on the stage. A fifth trophy, also silver-plated but covered with a handkerchief, is full of 16 slips of paper. Each slip of paper has the name of a national team, and after a shake or two, a piece of paper is pulled out. 
The name of the country is read aloud and the slip of paper is dropped into one of the four corresponding trophies. That's how the first round matches of the 16 teams are decided. England versus Uruguay in the opening match on July the 11th at Wembley. One by one, FIFA's president, Stanley Rouse, that was his voice there, read out the names of the teams competing in the 1966 World Cup. It's a quaint scene that had been repeated in one form or another seven times previously, ever since FIFA had become the lords of soccer and held its inaugural championship tournament in 1930 in Uruguay. Unlike today, where FIFA's big decisions had become star-studded affairs, early events were more like high tea and far less flashy, as British soccer historian Stu Horsfield told me. The draw for the 1966 World Cup, for example, it's very business-like. It's sort of two platforms of men. Names are drawn out. It's noted down on paper. It's popped on a board, and that's it, and everything's finished. So let's go back to FIFA's very start in 1904. The organization was far more rudimentary than it is today. It was all about staging matches. It was the end of the 19th century and soccer's popularity was surging around the globe, particularly in Europe and South America. The oldest international football match is England versus Scotland. The second oldest is Argentina versus Uruguay. You know, so it was a very much a two-continent sport. There was a big problem. The rules of soccer varied from country to country, even town to town. Matches were regularly played under one set of rules during the first half of a game and another in the second half. Promoters had begun to stage international competitions, and for soccer to survive and thrive, the rules needed to be unified. So on May 21st, 1904, representatives from seven national federations, France, Belgium, Spain, Sweden, Denmark, Switzerland, and the Netherlands met in the back room of a Parisian sports club to codify the rules of international soccer. You'll notice the slate doesn't include any South American countries. In 1904, many of those countries were treated as more colonies aligned with Europe than as fully independent nations. Will be the Fédération Internationale de Football Association. FIFA. FIFA! FIFA's own portrayal of the moment is captured in a ridiculous, self-produced propaganda film called United Passions. Released in America at the height of FIFA's 2015 corruption scandal, the film grossed less than $1,000 in the U.S. on its opening weekend. The film celebrates the signing of the FIFA charter, treating it as something akin to the signing of the Magna Carta or the Declaration of Independence. The hubris is just, well, pronounced. But back to our history lesson. Within a few years of its formation, FIFA added England, Germany, South Africa, Argentina, and Chile to its club. This made the soccer organization, at least on paper, global. In reality, FIFA's beating heart remained European, and its administrators did little to integrate the South Americans, who really had no role in managing world soccer. During FIFA's first 70 years, all 11 of its permanent presidents and general secretaries came from Europe. South American soccer and its issues rarely, if ever, made it onto FIFA's agenda. It was a very Eurocentric organization. So with that came this 
philosophy of colonialism, imperialism. With the exception of Switzerland, all of FIFA's founding members were former or current colonial powers. FIFA's early administrators came from that world, grew up in that world. 19th century colonialism and Christian superiority were, to them, a given. And they often viewed non-European countries, particularly their current and former colonies, with disdain. Some, like General Secretary Carl Anton Wilhelm Hirschman, even resisted FIFA's South American expansion on the grounds it would dilute the organization's European and enlightened character. Even presidents who supported FIFA's early expansion, from Jules Romay to Arthur Drury to Stanley Rouse, still believe soccer radiated from Europe. They viewed these non-European countries as less civilized and incapable of leadership in global affairs. Most shamefully, FIFA's founders believed these countries would only come into the 20th century if they followed the steady hand and firm rules of European institutions. Nowhere was this reality more evident than in World Cup draws, where the lords of soccer often excluded non-white countries. Here again, Stu Horsfield. When you have European presidents who come from nations who have colonized African states, there is always going to be conflict. There is always going to be this issue of race and repression. So in the spring of 1966, as Sir Stanley Rouse read out the names of the 16 nations invited to compete in the World Cup. We want to put this sequence of matches now on the board on the left. Ten were from Europe, five were from Latin America, and one was from Asia. None were from Africa. It might have been called a World Cup, but it was more like a European championship with a few friendly nations invited to the party, which is just the way FIFA's European leadership liked it. Keep in mind, it was now 1966, not 1866. The Beatles were closer to their end than their beginning. The Summer of Love was just two years away. The U.S. Civil Rights Bill had just been passed. FIFA, in all of its hubris, was continuing to expand with the idea that its vision would rule the world. But the world was starting to see things differently. Small plumes of black smoke rose into the air. It's March 1960 in the Sharpville Township of South Africa. Men, women, and children, young and old, are singing hymns as they burn their government-issued identification cards. The white police ordered the black demonstrators to stop and back away from the police station's flimsy chain-linked fence. The 20,000 protesters ignored the barking commands and continued protesting the apartheid regime's newest racial decree that required black South Africans to always carry their IDs or face arrest. The peaceful protest turns ugly when a squadron of U.S.-built F-86 Sabre jets buzz the crowd to scare protesters away. That's when the rocks begin to fly, raining down on the 150 or so white police officers. Police get the command to load their weapons. Then came the order to fire. Gunshots ripped through the backs of unarmed protesters as they fled. The Sharpville Massacre, as the March 21, 1960 murders are now known, 
left 69 people dead and hundreds more injured. It also put an international spotlight on the South African government and its horrific apartheid system. Historian Peter Alleghi wrote about the events of that day in his book, African Soccerscapes, How a Continent Changed the World's Game. Well, apartheid was a harsh form of government-sanctioned racism and segregation carried out by a white minority in a country where they never represented more than 20% of the population. If the white Afrikaans government was embarrassed or remorseful about the vicious and racist attack, they didn't show it. No, they doubled down. A little more than a week after the Sharpeville massacre, the Interior Minister Jan de Klerk said the segregation of South African sports would continue, especially in the increasingly popular game of soccer. Not only were mixed-race teams outlawed in South Africa, but so were mixed-race teams from other nations. This would be a big test for FIFA. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The Nick's anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of Nick's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to Nick's leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. The August air was thick and oppressive when FIFA gathered for its 1960 World Congress. But the scorching Mediterranean sun wasn't the only thing causing delegates from FIFA's now 69 member nations to sweat that summer. Only three years before, Egypt, Ethiopia, Sudan, and South Africa, the only four independent nations in Africa, united to form the Confederation of African Football, or CAF. CAF gave the continent a permanent say inside FIFA. And while some in FIFA's leadership saw the formation of CAF as a healthy sign of soccer's global reach, the expansion was a political conundrum for FIFA's old guard. Here again is historian Peter Alleghi. Egyptians, Ethiopians, and Sudanese demanded that South Africa field a racially integrated team at that inaugural African Nations Cup in Khartoum. But the white association refused to do so, basically hiding behind an excuse that they couldn't do anything about government policy. Citing its policy of racial intolerance, these three African countries voted to expel South Africa from CAF shortly after its formation. Now in Rome, with the Sharpeville massacre still fresh in the mind of its delegates, the same three African nations demanded FIFA boot South Africa from the global soccer community. It was an inherently racist football organization that would not tolerate mixed race teams. It would not tolerate competition between black teams or white teams. FIFA was formed by Europeans for the sole purpose of governing international soccer. So the idea of FIFA expelling one of their own for political reasons was unthinkable to most of FIFA's Eurocentric members especially since such a move would force those same nations to look directly at their own colonial past. FIFA was terribly concerned about the political ramifications of this within the organization. Many of the non-European, non-white delegates felt the organization had to act. Doing nothing risked undermining FIFA's policy of non-discrimination towards players of all races. Under the sweltering Roman sky, FIFA's Congress voted 52 to 10 to adopt a resolution declaring soccer matches open to all people, regardless of race or religion. They stopped short of kicking South Africa out directly. Instead, they said any nation that continued to practice racial discrimination would be expelled from FIFA within a year. It was a courageous policy forced on the founders by FIFA's newest members, And it had real consequences, as Alegi explains. By late 1961, time was up. South Africa turned down the opportunity to introduce racially integrated football, and FIFA suspended South Africa in September of 61. The suspension meant that the apartheid regime would be banned from the World Cup 
and from many other international soccer competitions. A devastating blow to a sporting nation that had not yet faced international pressure for its apartheid system. And this was a symbolic victory at a very difficult time for the liberation movements in South Africa. When FIFA, this major global body, sanctioned white South Africa, it instilled hope at a very much needed time for most black South Africans. It was historic. FIFA had set itself apart from most international organizations for its willingness to tackle a difficult human rights challenge. This was really the first major incident in international football of expulsion due to racial discrimination. But the moment was fleeting. Just three days later, the very same group that booted South Africa out elected the conservative Englishman Stanley Rouse, a staunch defender of South Africa, as its president, and in so doing, set up more than a decade of conflict. Stanley Rouse rarely gave an inch to anyone. At six feet, three inches tall, the former English referee, school teacher, and soccer official was a mountain of a man on and off the pitch. Stodgy and self-righteous, he believed the rules of soccer, like the rules governing civilized society, were sacrosanct. There was right, there was wrong, there was black, and there was white. Here again is Stu Horsfield. He was very intelligent. Without being a great modernizer and a great thinker, he was very stable, incredibly stable person. FIFA's sixth president was once asked by a journalist if he had ever been offered a bribe. Rouse sneered at the question and the implication that a man of his moral grounding could be corrupted by money. Ha! He insisted that any attempt to bribe him would be a foolish endeavor, and he vowed that anyone who tried would be expelled from the sport. He was so incorruptible, he said anyone who wanted to be on a FIFA committee should pay for their own train ticket or airfare to Zurich, now the home of FIFA, and earn their spot. The only thing more rigid, more immovable than Rouse's Victorian principles were his steadfast imperialist beliefs. Rouse believed in the superiority of the British Empire. He also believed, as only someone so set in their ways can, that his views were beyond politics. They were fundamental. As such, he said sports and politics should never mix nor should sports be used to promote a political agenda. As a very well-educated young man, he was also, of his time, a man who believed in the amateur ethos and that sport shouldn't be a battleground for politics. Rouse once described an African referee training program as missionary work, which I guess means Rouse wasn't against mixing sports, religion, and politics if his own conservative, Christian, and colonialist beliefs were being upheld. So it might not surprise you to learn that Rouse was a vocal supporter of and regularly expressed sympathy for South Africa's brutal apartheid regime and its all-white soccer association. When Rouse was elected FIFA president just three days after the organization suspended South Africa, he immediately went to work to undo the ban. He was constantly trying to find ways to get apartheid South Africa readmitted. And this really angered many members of FIFA, as well as, of course, the anti-apartheid movement as a whole. In January of 1963, Rouse led a delegation to South Africa to, I guess the word is, investigate the situation. 
You'll hear the details in just a moment, but let me give you the top line. Rouse met with a government-sanctioned, all-white, pro-apartheid Football Association of South Africa. And he met with a breakaway football delegation, the racially mixed South African Soccer Federation. He took the side of the white guys. Here again is Stu Horsfield. The South African Soccer Federation, who set themselves up as an alternative governing body whose mandate was to represent all of South Africa, so white South Africans, black South Africans, mixed-race South Africans, but Stanley Rouse refused to recognize them. FIFA's president returned home with a glowing report of the Football Association of South Africa and recommended FIFA's executive council reinstate the all-white group. They produced a truly astounding report that concluded that there was no racial discrimination in South Africa. And as a result, FIFA lifted temporarily the suspension on apartheid South Africa. You know, this was rather incredible. <laughs> Indeed, the reaction of many members was outrage. The African continent just saw that as another indicator that while Stanley Rouse was in charge, FIFA would be an inherently racist organization. When Stanley Rouse's plane touched down in Egypt in January of 1963, Cairo's once rudimentary airport was nearing the end of a six-year construction project. Two new runways and a spacious modern terminal were just weeks away from opening. It was to be a symbol of just how far Egypt and Africa had advanced since independence. But if the continent was looking to the future, FIFA's president arrived carrying the baggage of its colonial past. Rouse had just finished his investigation into South Africa, and after FIFA's executive committee officially reinstated South Africa under Rouse's direction, he stopped in Cairo for the Confederation of African Football's General Assembly. Much like the airport, CAF was going through a remarkable transformation, growing from just four member nations in 1957 to more than 30 a few years later. As it grew in size, Peter Leggi says, and also grew in confidence. As more African nations won their independence in the late 50s and especially in the 60s, this relationship between FIFA and Africa became more and more contentious. The meeting between Rouse and the African delegates was every bit as tense and confrontational as you would expect. During his opening speech, Rouse said he had seen no evidence of discrimination in South Africa. And in a very paternalistic tone, the Englishman suggested FIFA's African members would just have to accept the executive committee's decision. Now, South Africa was just one point of contention in that meeting. Despite adding dozens of new nations to FIFA's membership roles since World War II, the World Cup remained anything but a global tournament. At the 1958 and 1962 World Cups, the only sides that qualified for the competition were from Latin America and Europe. There were no African or Asian teams represented. This only added to the strong sense that the World Cup was essentially a European soccer festival that, as I said earlier, allowed a few Latin American friends to crash the party. CAF lobbied Rouse and FIFA's executive committee to give at least one automatic spot to the now sizable African delegation. When FIFA announced that the top African and the top Asian team would be forced to compete in a winner-take-all playoff to secure the one non-European, 
non-Latin American spot in the 1966 World Cup, CAF decided the only way to force FIFA to take their concerns seriously was to withdraw in mass from the global tournament. In other words, stage a boycott. So Africa just boycotted the entire 1966 World Cup qualification process and didn't enter the tournament. Some 70 nations tried to earn a spot in the 1966 World Cup. None, of course, were from Africa. But the continent was represented, at least in terms of talent. While England won the tournament on its home soil, and Bobby Moore hoisted the Jules Rimet trophy before 80,000 ecstatic English fans, the top goal scorer of the tournament played for Portugal and was born in Mozambique, then a Portuguese colony. Even though the African nations boycotted the 1966 World Cup qualifying process, CAF did achieve a big victory off the field. 78 of FIFA's 100 members voted to overturn Stanley Rouse's recommendation and once again suspend, though they didn't expel, South Africa from world soccer play. Rouse had overruled FIFA's membership. And now three years later, FIFA's members had overruled Rouse. It was a monumental slap in the face to South Africa's apartheid regime and to Rouse. And by 1970, Africa had won a guaranteed spot in that year's World Cup. In those turbulent times, the world was changing. And Rouse and his ilk were stuck in the past. And he would soon face, once again, the collective wrath of the African continent. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. It was a gray, rainy day in Frankfurt when Stanley Rouse woke and walked to breakfast. For almost 13 years, the aristocratic Englishman had been the most powerful man in world soccer. In his mind, his re-election was a foregone conclusion. Yeah, sure, there had been some disagreements between FIFA's old guard and its newer members on his watch, but what Rouse thought were isolated disagreements over South Africa and automatic spots at the World Cup were clear evidence to his detractors of FIFA's inherent racism and ingrained colonial structure. They wanted change. Still, as Rao sat drinking his English breakfast tea on the morning of June 11, 1974, he saw little reason to think there was anything to worry about other than a light rain in the day's forecast. Here's historian John Sugden, author of the book Football, Corruption, and Lies. When it came to the 74 election, he thought he could put his feet up and rely on the Africans and the Asians. He thought he could rely on their support because he'd been so loyal to them in his own mind. As FIFA's members gathered in West Germany for its presidential election, the winds of change were blowing and Rouse was oblivious. Here's Stu Horsfield. He was still convinced that this almost colonial attitude of we looked after you since you've come into the FIFA family, he still assumed that that was enough to secure the vote. He didn't acknowledge the mobilization of African nations, of Asian nations, and the fact that they had had enough. They'd had enough of what they'd seen as an inherently racist organization. Frustrated with Rouse's colonial complacency, the Confederation of African Football which had now grown to 37 nations, had thrown their support behind the wealthy and outspoken Brazilian sports administrator, João Havelange. The 58-year-old former Olympic swimmer positioned himself as a champion of the Southern, and to be blunt, browner game of soccer. As the Brazilian sports official, Silvio Pacheco, wrote at the time about João Havelange, his candidacy is not for South America. His candidacy is for the entire world. If Rouse was celebrated in the patrician dining rooms of London, Paris, and Zurich, Havelange would ally himself with the players on the dirt pitches of Cairo, Kinshasa, and Kingston. 
Before arriving in Frankfurt for the 1974 election, Havelange toured the world with the Brazilian superstar Pele, visiting a remarkable 80 different countries. During this whistle-stop tour, Havelange courted supporters by attacking FIFA's European dominance. He vowed to expand the World Cup from 16 to 24 teams and increase the number of automatic spots for Asians and Africans. In expansion, Rouse opposed out of fear of diluting the tournament's European nature. And most crucially, Havelange promised, unlike Rouse, to permanently ban South Africa from FIFA. Because of what Stanley Rouse refused to acknowledge and refused to see, Havelange very much takes advantage and can see the opportunity that's there if he can court the African vote and if he can mobilize the African and Asian nations. Now, as attractive as these policies were to FIFA's newer members, getting them to vote was an entirely different matter. Havelange, very little scruples, very good at manipulating the situation to suit himself. In 1974, many of the newer national delegations were poor, and they lacked the money to travel to far-flung Frankfurt for a FIFA Congress. So Havelange, who was born the wealthy son of an arms dealer and made millions during a very successful business career, used his own personal wealth to fly in key voters. Before the 1974 election... Now, this just wasn't done within the stuffy and aristocratic FIFA. Remember Rouse saying new members should buy their own tickets? And Rouse he didn't have the money anyways to carry out such a crass strategy. Havelange would later talk openly about the helping hand he gave would-be supporters. By the time FIFA's members sat down to vote, Rouse's miscalculation was on full display. He didn't stand a chance. Havelange defeated the uncompromising Englishman 68 votes to 52 and became FIFA's seventh president. Stu Horsfield pinpoints where Rouse let his eye off the ball. Because of Stanley Rouse's refusal to change and his refusal to accept politics having a place in the sport that he loves, it ultimately becomes his undoing. Once the election was confirmed, Havelange kissed Rouse on the cheek presented the former president with a bouquet of flowers. Rouse would later comment that the bouquet felt more like a burial wreath. Under Havelange, a new era would begin, one of exploding revenues and commercialization and globalization. When he took control of FIFA in 1974, it was still a modest operation, with virtually nothing in the bank. By the time the Brazilian retired in 1998, FIFA had $4 billion in reserves and had become a $250 million a year business. But the man who built FIFA into a multi-billion dollar marketing machine would also be implicated in a string of scandals involving millions of dollars in bribes and shady kickbacks. And worse, Havelange had a nasty habit of cozying up to gangsters and dictators and choosing profit over human rights. That's coming up next on the Lords of Soccer. The Lords of Soccer, How FIFA Stole the Beautiful Game, is an Inside Voices media production in conjunction with iHeartRadio. The series was written and executive produced by Gary Scott and me, Connor Powell. Logan Heftel and Katie McMurrin provided the sound design with assistance from J.C. Swadek and Jake Blue Note. Alec Cowan is our associate producer, 
and Jeffrey Katz was our story editor. Our fact checker is Alexa O'Brien. And thanks to Miles Gray, who produced this series for iHeartRadio. If you have any comments or questions, please reach out. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Connor M. Powell. And Gary is at Gary Robert Scott. And if you have any stories about FIFA, let us know. If you like what you hear, please give us a shout out at the hashtag Lords of Soccer. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.